you know, such an immense privilege. Um, I want to start by just asking us all to take out your cedar reeds that are at your tables. The Lord Torah, any time, is a blessing from God. And to learn with Micha is a double blessing from God. So let's thank God for the gift of learning to together on page 63. So let's see read page 63. Asher Kishan Rubitzvata et Zivanu Lahasot Vibrei Torah Pa'arefna Adonai Elaveinu et Vibrei Torah Chavavinu Uvipiyamcha Beit Yisrael Peniyanachna Vitzatzeinu Vitzatzei Amcha Beit Yisrael Kulani Yodei Shemecha Valamdei Torah Techavishma Vorok Atar Enoi Hamalamei Torah Lamo Yisrael Vorok Atar Enoi Elagim Melech Avalam I share both our So let me just frame the morning for you, our time with Mika. Uh, Mika in Israel is a teacher of texts and a writer of books. Actually, just wrote a new book that just came out about the Kuzari by Yudah Halevi. And already in, in one week, it's a bestseller. Literally. Um, so he does text study, obviously, as you know. Uh, and the first hour with Mika is going to be text study. This is a lecture that he gave, the closing lecture, the climactic lecture at Hartman this summer. And we all loved it, and all of us thought we want to bring this to our directors and trustees. So that's going to be the first hour. In addition, he is a builder of institutions. Uh, he created something that didn't exist. Yeshua and I and something from nothing. It's called a prop. He'll talk to you about it, but six years ago, it didn't exist. And now it's the hottest thing in Israel. They have four campuses. They have wait lists. Um, it touches the lives of thousands of people. And it just went like that. And he's going to talk about how the DFI story, how it got built, what it does, how to sustain excellence, and what that would mean for our mission as a shul. His institution is about changing lives in Israel. Ours is about changing lives here. And what can we learn from a prop? What can a prop learn from us? So that's our morning. Viva. Thank you.
creating real unjudgmental environment. That is the beginning part of the great success of your your synagogue. It's always so amazing that God here is a fourth time here. And every time it's Connor and Connor coming. So thank you. Thank you all. This might be a little bit heavy. I want to start with some heavy stuff. I want to start with trying to understand what monotheism is. We've been thinking about monotheism as a revolution. Now, if it's a revolution, so before I think, so, oh, I have, I have. Okay. So, before anything else, if it's a revolution, so it means that it's rebellion against a certain background. It's very different from where it grew from. And monotheism is very different, and there's a very important scholar called Cheske Goyman that tries to uncover, uncover the uniqueness of monotheism. And Goyman noticed the following, and this way was famous for the following grace book, that monotheism is not the belief in one God. It's the belief in the uniqueness of God. I'll say this in Hebrew because it sounds... It's not about living that Hashem Echad. It's about living that Hashem Meyuchad. That the uniqueness of God. I'll try to explain this point for a minute. The pagan impulse. The pagan impulse, I think, is a very fascinating impulse. It's the impulse that nature has power. And when the, the gods exist, when they're part of nature. It's like when you're outside in the nighttime looking at the stars, looking at the ocean, looking at mountains, when you're really impressed by nature, you have a religious experience that comes out of watching nature, you're excited by nature. There's just something divine here in nature. Well, paganism is trying, it's playing on that impulse, and it's turning our, our the excitement that we have when we're standing in front of nature into a ritualization of nature. Paganism is believing that nature is divine and that there's the ground and the earth is a god and the ocean has gods and especially the sky is filled with gods and the wind are divine and lightning is the power of God and the gods are here. The gods are part of nature. And if the gods are part of nature, that has meaning. And the main meaning of the fact that the gods are part of nature, that, that, that gods are in the sky, that gods are in the wind, that gods are the forces of nature, the main meaning of that is that gods are not liberated. They themselves are locked in the laws of nature. They're part of nature, therefore nature controls them. The, the great laws of nature control the gods. Therefore gods are born and they get married, they reproduce and they die. They're part of the cycles of nature. That's the pagan intuition. What is monotheism? Monotheism is not a mathematical impulse. It's not shrinking God from gods to God, from many gods to one God. It's more than that. Monotheism is not separating God from nature. That's monotheism. Monotheism is saying that God is not a part of the natural system. That transcends the natural system. That's monotheism. By the way, if you think about where in the Torah is monotheism expressed, where is it expressed that God is not a part of natural order? 
But I think it all begins in the very beginning. Bereshit bara Elohim et Shemayim In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, which means if He created everything, He's not a part of everything. And the separation of God and nature. That's what one of the ingredients. The transcendence of God. That is what one of these ingredients. And there's any word in the Hebrew language that captures the otherness of God, it's the word kadosh. Kadosh. What does kadosh mean? Holy and holy Hebrew. Look at how this word is worked out throughout the Bible. It says in Sinai, Hagbeli etahal mikidashot. Hagbeli etahal mikidashot. Which means, Mount Sinai. You're not allowed to touch it. You can't get close to it because it's holy. Meaning, holiness is what's unaccessible. Holiness is what's untouchable. Allah Allah educates us. So the holiest word in the Hebrew language is the word that we can't pronounce. The holiest space in Jewish geography, the holy of holies, and that's very hard where we can't enter. The holiest word is the word you can't pronounce, the holiest place is where you can't go in, the holiest mountains that you can't touch. To be holy means that it's beyond your reach. It's untouchable. That's what holy means. It's untouchable. And obviously, the foundation of all holies, God, is completely beyond our reach. That's monotheism. Turning God into the ultimate other. That's monotheism. Or in the language of Heschel, God is the absolute mystery. Now this biblical impulse, I think, was articulated by its best, and at its best, in Maimonides' philosophy. Maimonidesism is God is a perplexed, which is what I wrote my book about, which is, by the way, an important book. <laughs> now, actually, I think I'm selling it too early. God willing, my book will be coming out in English, and it'll be grabbing all the books. Don't forget now, I want to use it in about a year from now. <laughs> so my mind, the God the complex tries to articulate this impulse and say, well, if God is really the absolute other, if he's really not a part of nature, if he's really not a part of this business, the only way to establish God as the absolute other is to say that God cannot be captured by language. Only if God is greater than language, then God is separate in this world. This is an idea I want to explain for a minute. Saying that God is greater than language means what is what language does to us? When I, we develop language, and we constantly, every time we talk, new words are born. That's what we do. Language develops itself. We develop language in order to describe the world. That's what language is for. We're describing the world. What? That's right. We're constantly trying to capture things using words. But here is the problem. If we, just, if we use those words that we use to describe the world in order to describe God, that are making God a part of the world. For example, for an example, let's say I say that God is 
that is good. Honestly, it's good. Now let's see. Um, uh, Mother Teresa, she's good, right? Obviously, she's a good person, right? Yeah. And who would agree? Wait, she's a good person. And Michelle Obama, she's a very good person, right? We already love Michelle Obama. She's a good person. Really? She's a fair artist. She's very good. <laughs> And God is good also. God is good. Now, okay, so you say, no, but not like Mother Teresa and Michelle Obama. He is far more good. That's right. God is more of the same thing. When I say that God is good, I'm putting him in the same category of Michelle Obama. I'm sure this was never done before. Of Michelle Obama and Mother Teresa. What I'm saying is that God is like everything we are, just much more. But God is not more of the same thing. He's the absolute other thing. Therefore, the only to establish God as absolute otherness in the fourth theological move is to say that you can't say. It's that God is beyond language. You can't be captured by words. Only if God is beyond words, he's beyond this world. This is what Maimonides understood. This is what Maimonides is taking the biblical revolution to its last step of separating God world and establishing God as an absolute mystery. The absolute otherness. So you may ask, so okay. So God is so beyond you can't talk about him. Okay, fine. Now just vanish. God's so remote and not part of our world. So what just happened to our world? So one reading would be that saying that God is holy, is kadosh, is so transcendent, means that this world was just secularized. Meaning monotheism is also the secularization of this world. And that's something I'd like to think about. I want to think about this and that is part of the biblical rule. The biblical woman is not only separating God from the world, it's also centralizing this world, and neutralizing our attempt to admire and to see as God made anything in this world, including ourselves. Including ourselves. In light of this, I want to take a spot to, um, to, to a different human tendency. I want to think, for, for example, on the 19th, 20th century in light and in some sense, it is described the following way. Humanism, radical humanism, means that human beings can create these ideas, these great ideas that are perfect ideas. And if we implement these perfect ideas, the world will be perfected, we can redeem this world. This is what communism is about, socialism is about, Maoism is about, fascism is about, all the big isms of the 20th century came from this impulse that we can create these perfect ideas. And if we implement those ideas, the world, the world will be perfected. What is that? That is an admiration. That is a beautiful word, Sida. Sida is when you're uh, in Hebrew, it's um, when you are worship, sorry, worshiping. It's a world, humanism. Was an attempt to worship ideas. 
There's great idea. By the way, Zionism was the same. There's this great idea, perfect idea, that was worship. The idea was worship. And you can tell when ideas worship, it does two things. One, you think the idea is perfect, and through that idea is implemented, the world will be redeemed. But the secular humanism didn't notice that this is, if you look at it from a monotheistic perspective, this is paganism in disguise. Because what it's doing is we're worshiping ideas that we created. What is paganism? It's the worship of what you created. It's, an, it's when you worship what you created. That's a very psychologically sophisticated way. When you worship the extension of yourself, it's a sophisticated way of worshiping yourself. And monotheism is about overcoming yourself. Now, when you worship, God is not here. It's not inside. If God is out, nothing here can be perfect. Nothing we create can have no faults. But that temptation of worshiping ideas, that is, I think, the modern experiment of idolatry. Worshiping ideas. Now, that's not to say that ideas don't count. It's just to say, you've admired, there is a subtle difference between admiring ideas and worshiping ideas. Which is, takes me to my third point. And that is, when you're worshiping human power, worshiping our ideas, worshiping the idea that it will take this idea in, but the world will be redeemed. But I strongly believe that American politics is monotheistic politics. I strongly believe that there's something modest about the way the founding fathers thought about politics. The idea that you're trying to form a more perfect union is so modest. A more perfect unit. Because 19th century, 20th century, including Zionists, and their unwritten constitution always says, we're coming together to form the perfect union. There's a perfect idea, we're going to be a perfect union. It's so modest, we can have. Almost mediocre. A more perfect union. Let's do it a little bit better. Where understanding that perfection is only owned by God. Which takes me to my third point, which will start leading me to this text I want to read. Well, optimism, separating God from nature, means that nothing in this world, no idea that we create is perfect. Nothing is perfect. God has a monopoly of perfection, and everything we see is unperfect, and therefore the Torah educates us to admire and accept and live with imperfection. But at the same time, what monotheism does, it attacks the pagan world the same way. The pagan world is a world that constantly believed not only that gods are, like I said, are in it, here. But that, that since they're part of nature, and nature has all these laws, and the gods obey the laws of nature, therefore if I can 
Those laws of nature, I can control the gods, which means magic. What is magic about? That's the anthropologist Fraser. Fraser, is it? Okay. Is that magic is about power and paganism and disbelief. But there's pockets of power in the cosmos. And the magician, taking his knowledge, transforming it into power, means that you tap in all those pockets of power and use that power for it to achieve what he or she wants to achieve. For example, there's a, a lot of power in paganism in Mars. Mars has a lot of power. And magicians know how to channel the power of Mars through their hands and control the world. There's different forms of magic. Magic is very interesting. A very interesting form of magic is magic immunization. For example, if um, they believe that there's a secret that in, in, in that sense, in that sense, magic is the opposite of art. Art is an attempt to imitate reality, trying to represent reality. Well, magic is a belief that if I do something, reality will imitate that. For example, um, uh, there's a dance that could bring down rain. And that dance includes taking water, spilling it on the floor, hoping, not hoping, forcing nature to imitate you. I'm mean, giving examples of magic. Magic. But magic is usually very sophisticated rituals that are established in order for us to control nature. Magic is about control. Magic is about power. Magic is about tapping into pockets of energy, of power that we have in the cosmos, and using them in order to control nature. That's what magic is about. Monotheism empties the world of magic from any significance. Because once God is not a part of nature, nature is now empty from all its power, and therefore, therefore, nature, where we live, is not controllable anymore. So monotheism doesn't only change who God is, it also changes who we are. Monotheism is about the secularization of nature empties human beings from their power. No more magic. No more gods to control. Monotheism is the shift of control from the magician, from people like us, to God. Now, there's an important anthropologist in the history of David Shulman. He writes how, um, about, about magic. Since magic is so much about control, you, you perform a ritual, ritual is supposed to have an effect. What happens if you perform that ritual? It doesn't have the effect. Let's say there's a ritual, it's a woman who's performed that will make someone fall in love with me, or make it rain. So I do all the steps of the ritual. I get all, I do the whole thing. And I call him while he's still not alone. So what would the, in a magical world, what would they believe in? Why did she, why isn't she not interested in me? Why is it not raining? We do the whole thing. Why is it not raining? Why? I did it wrong. I did it wrong. Nature is a machine. If it press the buttons, it will work. 
I guess I just did, you know, press the right button. I did it wrong. So I have to do it again. And the rituals are very sophisticated. I have to do it again. That's the world that the Bible is attacking. When I think about the meaning that this shift that monotheism creates in our religious and spiritual awareness. Monotheism is that accepting the fact that we can't control the world anymore. That's the transformation that monotheism tries to create in the Bible and it seems like it's still trying to transform our spiritual awareness. It didn't really work yet for many people. The following sense I'll, I think I'll, I'll use your example I use in Harvard in the summer. That might be helpful. Because it, it, I mean, this is where I live and manage to live it out. When I was, uh, I think this was 95. 95, I was in the army. We get the terrible news. But a Golani soldier in Akhshan was kidnapped by the Hamas. Y'all remember this? When Akhshan Baksan was kidnapped by the Hamas. And about two days later, the Hamas releases uh, a video of Akhshan Baksan speaking to the camera. And he's saying his words that, uh, you know, that he's kidnapped him. And the army and the Israeli Shabbat, like the FBI, they start searching for Nachshon Baxman. And finally, they know exactly where he is. In three, four days, they know exactly where he is. By the way, unbelievably, ironically, they were keeping him in a village right next to the Jerusalem neighborhood of Hamon. The Hamon is where the Baxman family was living. So his terrifying parents are in Hamon not knowing that their son Everyone saying the name for Nachshon Baxman. And I remember 
Carol's announcement. So many people saying reading her announcement. I remember reading that and not believing, but knowing that Nachshon will be okay. It's impossible to get 60,000 Jews together saying Tehillim without that to work. While we're doing that, the Israeli forces were sent to that house where he was kept. And during the operation, Nachshon was killed. And also one of our Israeli soldiers, Mir Tawaz, was also killed in this operation. The next day there's a funeral, and I remember some of the Israeli press articles the way. And somehow, during the funeral, they asked people to express that the father of Nachshon, so crazy, like they push a can away with his head, and they asked him. So, all the prayers, they didn't work? They said, well, you all asked God for to save your son, and God didn't give us an answer. Then you know that's the answer as a Israeli worker the most important nothing that ever learns in theology. Then we fell off the camera that Sunday. Because we all asked God for an answer, and we did receive an answer. Gives you the illusion of control. We 
religion at its best enables you to accept your lack of virtue. That's religion at its best. That's internalizing monotheism. Religion is where we go when we want to let go. That's religion at its best. I remember um, one of this text. Let's go into this text. I want to read a, um, a chapter from, from the Bible that kind of challenges, that seems to challenge everything I just said. And before we go into this chapter, I want to try to polish the concept of monotheism and magic. I'd like to do one more thing now, and that is to try to explain another biblical concept that we need to understand when we understand this text, and that is the category of tzadat, the leprosy. Tzadat is a, I don't know what it really is, medically speaking, it's a biblical disease, and it's an interesting disease, because it's always related to a sin. You do a sin, and then you get leprosy. But what's the sin you have to perform to get leprosy according to the Bible? Does anyone know what's the sin? What? Slander. What is slander? Saying bad things. Yeah, bad things. That's not a nice thing to do. The very box says you always bad down people who bad down. That's a nice thing about us. Now, when sickness, that's how the Talmud establishes it. It says, Mitzolah, Mutzi, Ra, Salah, seeing the word from someone else. But it seems like that when you look into all the examples we have in the Bible of people that got hit by leprosy, it's more than bad mouthing. Bad mouthing is a part of it, but it doesn't capture it. Salah, that is, I'll give you an example. To Yehovah bin Abbas. Yehovah bin Abbas is the king that establishes the northern kingdom of Israel. To remind you, the kingdom was united in Solomon's time. Then when Solomon dies, the northern kingdom, it rebels against the son of Solomon, Rehavan, and it creates an independent kingdom. And in order to create an independent kingdom, it completely separates itself from the south, and he realizes, he realizes, Yehovah, the rebel, that the only way to establish an independent northern kingdom is to have an independent northern religion. Because if we have the same religion, the power will stay in the south. So in order to shift the power to the north, we have to have a separate religion. So he creates a new sacred place in Big Day and in Dan, that in Jerusalem. A new sac- sacred time, not the seventh month, the eighth month. A new sacred people, not the Levites, but he has his own new tribe of Levites. And he creates a new, seven, new sacred people, a new sacred state, and he does all that. And not only does he decide that there's new sacred people, he also appoints himself to be part of the sacred people. So he's both the king and the high priest, and that moment where he establishes a new religion, a new kingdom, he's the king, he's the high priest, he controls all the power, then he gets leprosy. A second example is Uziel. Uziel is a very successful king. Maybe you know the song, but even Uziel, he doesn't have a nice song. And, and he just and you know, like fortresses around you move from extremely, extremely successful military, 
and against Hebrews, Hubris, I think you say in English, well, they, it's an English word, right? And against Hubris, and it begged, he fled the sea. And there's another king that has Hubris, he's not going to say, there's Miriam, the famous, uh, the famous story of Miriam, where Miriam, if you remember, she has, she has prophecy, then she says to her brother, I mean, well, we're prophets, just like Moses. Then she gets leprosy. What does leprosy bring up to God? Leprosy comes as a result of success. Spiritual success, yeah, prophecy. Military success. Political success. Leprosy is the disease of, of winners. Winners get leprosy. Leprosy comes when you can't deal with your success. Your success blinds you. Now, how does success blind you? Blinds you. Let's take a classic example of Hubris, like Napoleon and other bad people in history. You're very successful. You conquer some countries. You're exposed to your power. You know you have. Now, here's a beautiful metaphor. The power blinds you. What does it blind you? You can't see straight anymore. What can you see? You can't see the boundaries of your own power. So you have no perfect image of your power. And now the next thing you not in light of your real power, but in light of the standard image you have in your power. Now, that's when Napoleon goes into Russia. He goes up so successful out into Russia. He now he's acting not in light of his real power, but he's believing he believes the image of the power he has. And here's obviously how the great society of tragedy of hubris. As a result, you lose all your power. So you have success, you're exposed to your power. Thank you. 
one thing, but giving like what God should have. There are three things that remind God of our sins. It's like God kind of advanced them to do three things so that he remembers. Shotgun was giving of what God said. One thing is Kiratui. Kiratui, there's a wall that's like about to fall. And if you walk next to it, if it's about to fall, that reminds God of your sins. I guess the logic here is that if you're walking next to a wall that's about to fall, God might see that and what, what might he think? Well, if you it reminds him of his sins, he might think, oh, this is a good chance. And the second thing is, I'm a skill of a local devil. First, I'm reminding God of the sins of his friend. That's a very nice thing to do. You pray to God and say, you know, this guy next to me. <laughs> That's a nice thing to do. And if you do that, so God suddenly gets reminded of your sins. And the third thing is, Iyum Fila. Now, what is Iyum Fila? What is a certain form of fila? Rashi comments. Rashi comments. Habotech mitfilatoshi kabla lefiche nemrade kabla. If I have absolute confidence that my prayers will be accepted because I said them with so much focus and kavana, that also reminds God of my, of my sins. Now here's my question. What's the common denominator of the falling wall of reminding God of my neighbor's sins and having absolute confidence that my prayers will be accepted. What's, what do we all share? Well, when I walk next to the wall, I'm saying this will never happen to me. When I speak about my neighbor's sins, I kind of feel like I myself am so righteous, I have no sins. And when I say my prayers will be accepted, that's also a different form of too much pride, too much hubris. Confidence, you have confidence in your prayer. That's not confidence in God. That's confidence in yourself. That's believing in my, that's thinking that I have the power. I can control my destiny. I can control nature. I can control disease. I have control. I have this technique. I close my eyes. I focus on words. I say that each of and it's going to happen. These are illusions of control. And that's what religion gives us sometimes. It enables us to deal with the anxiety of life because it gives us like this illusion that we can control what we can't control. That is what religion does sometimes. I just don't think it's religion that we do at its best. Now, if it be Shabbat, if God says that I'll try not to control, but I'm just asking. I'm just asking. I'm not. I'm just asking. Noticing and realizing that this isn't a formula that works. This is asking. This is, a, this is an act of empathy. This is just asking. And the answer could be yes. Like you, the box backs across all. The answer could be no. That is also an answer. Okay? Okay. I want to go down to the um, back to the 8th or 9th century BC. Prophet called Elisha. I know they say Elisha means 
Johannes is the enigma. And Yishak claims that he could cure leprosy. Okay, so, and Yishak is so not minus. And, and, and that's why I want to focus our reading at that moment where Naamad is sent to Elisha, where this great, successful general is sent to this person living in the Shalom, Samaria. Samaria is today the, the name of that land called Samaria, but in the Bible, the name of a city, Shalom. I want to read from verse 5. Now, I'd like to read from the Hebrew. So Naaman came to his horses, you see, on chariots. You see? And I'm going to read this in the Hebrew, and feel free to, to, um, but if anything is not clear in the Hebrew, you, you don't notice the translation to ask me. It's humiliating. 
hard. But correct, I mean, it's always not easy when you sentence a servant and he's not, and even if a person that doesn't have that much hubris, I said, oh, is Ezekiel saying the little guy, help the little guy telling him to do it? Now listen to what he's saying there. Vani amati, inamati, and Eli Yetze, he himself was supposed to come to me. I expected to put his hand in the sky, say God's name, take his hands, they're powered by God, put it on, you know, on my skin, and he'll make him lift his magic rod, and, and leprosy will disappear. He didn't do that. Instead of offering me service, Instead of curing me, he's commanding me. Instead of him serving me, I have to obey him. I'm not doing that. Turns around and leaves. His servants tell him where to go. Wait, 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 General. Maybe you should do what he says. And then he says, by the way, it's a triple humiliation. One, that he didn't go out in himself. Two, that instead of serving him, he commands him. And three, this is your graphic humiliation. He says to him, Harotom Amanam Bepapao Naavodamisik Mikorni Beisrael. Alor El Chazbet, he's telling me to dip in that thing Israel calls a river. <laughs> now, where a river has curing powers. Well, this is before there's a there's that image that's a curing powers for the for one reason. This is where the image came from. You get never tradition before tradition, right? So this is where it came from. Back then it was just now I think if the Jordan River was in America, I probably wouldn't have had a name. Like that place is water. <laughs> I mean, the world has impressive rivers like the Mississippi and the Nine and uh, and, the, and the Nile and you know there's and the uh, you know the Indian, but there's like people like rivers have power. Not that um, little puddle we have there. Yeah. So it's a triple humiliation. He's saying he's sending me to there, and not to keep his servants. He wants me to obey him. Now, for regular people, that's not easy with the deal with our ego. But this is the person that his entire problem is his ego. And he overcome that. As a metaphor, I don't know if it exists in English. You, you swallow the form, the form of what happens on that. No? Does it work? Well, then you can't listen. No? No. At the Borat, it's on that. You just do it. Uh, well, let's sound this metaphor in English now, okay? You swallow the frog. <laughs> Never heard that before? You bite the bullet. You bite the bullet, okay? Yes, yeah. yeah, okay, you bite the bullet. Yeah, I think swallowing the frog is harmful. Dips and he's cured. 
thinks it's a clash of cultures. It is a clash of cultures. It's a pagan general leading a march against the prophet. And what happens? There's a gap of expectations. Because the pagan general believes that we control everything, and he could just do something and cure. He could offer me, he's supposed to offer me magic. What really happened? What did Elisha really offer him? What did he really offer him? He told, your problem is your ego. Your problem is that you, you can't see anything beyond yourself. Now let's see if you can obey a servant you don't appreciate to go to a place that you don't appreciate. And if you can do all that and swallow that big frog, if you can do all that and swallow your ego, then you'll be cured. Meaning, he came for magic. When he shot, didn't get the magic, he gave him everything. Who cured Naaman? Naaman. Naaman to overcome the ego trip that found the disease in order to overcome that disease. This is monotheism. Monotheism established here by saying that even the greatest heroes of the Bible don't have the power to cure. Leprosy. Leprosy is a result of not recognizing yourself. And he's asking if he should recognize that you're just a human being. Recognize yourself. Overcome your pride. Listen to the servant. Obey him. See yourself bigger than you. Well, the, the end of the story is very interesting. The end of the story is that he goes back to Elisha. He wants to pay Elisha. Honestly, he wants to pay him. But Elisha doesn't accept his money because he can't accept his money. Why can't he accept his money? That's the paradox. Because if he accepts his money, what is he saying? That he did it. He's in the vision that he did it. And the whole thing is the feat that he sustained the pagan identity that human beings have control. But the whole act here was an expression of not having control. That's really what the whole thing was about. So he can't accept his money, but he has a servant also. I guess it's a safe servant. So the servant chases him. Feels like, wow, we just cured the general. We're getting him out of it. So Naaman runs all the way to him. And what does Naaman say to him? He lies to the general saying that the prophet Guess came, changed his mind, he wants some money, gives him money, gives him goods, comes back to Elisha. Elisha knows what he did because he knows the man. And what does Elisha say to him? And how the story ends. That as a result of the fact that you received money for curing the tzara, the leprosy of Naaman, now what will happen to you? Now you are going to get the tzara. Sa'ad now moves from Naaman, from Naaman to the servant, to Yechazim. Ending with a real paradox. If you can, if you take credit for curing leprosy, if you think it was your power, your understanding, your knowledge that led Sa'ad to be cured from leprosy, but that leprosy
has really a nice experience. Here it is out in a bushy thing shine. What is it? It's hot blue sky. And I see <laughs> So you go to the side and I ask him, why do you try to control the situation? And he said,
lot of weight gain, uh, not to control things, but let's say seven minutes. A seven minute break, and then we're going to come to middle part two, which is more of a practical thing. Uh, his leadership is very proud of what that would mean for Temple Emmanuel. Seven minute break. Thank you.